One of the most common and more productive procedures performed in general dentist office is crown and bridge, uh, the majority of which is still porcelain fused to metal restorations. I haven't met a dentist yet who doesn't enjoy performing these procedures. And what I want to show you today in this video presentation are some products and some procedures that will make your fixed prosthodontics better, more productive, more profitable, and will leave your patients happy with the quality of your restorative work. On this first case where superior aesthetics are mandatory, I will be prescribing CapTech. CapTech is porcelain fused to 22 karat gold copings that are a rich yellow color, assuring that you will have no dark metal margins on your restorations. The rich color of the coping mimics the color of a natural vital tooth, which is why CapTech restorations are sometimes mistaken for all ceramic restorations. CapTech has also been clinically documented to have lower bacterial accumulation rates than any other material, including even enamel. Uh, we are going to prep four maxillary anterior teeth, teeth seven through 10 on her. Uh, typically, we try to either stay within the cuspids and do the four anterior teeth as we're going to do in Andrea's case, or go all the way back to the first or second bicuspids. We really try to avoid just doing six units from cuspid to cuspid because the cuspids end up looking way too prominent by the time the final restorations are placed and the bicuspids tend to disappear into the dark buccal corridor and it doesn't look good when the patient smiles. This is the occlusal view of teeth number 7, 8, 9, and 10. Again, you can see some old amalgams in place with some recurrent decay uh, underneath it. During my interview with Andrea, she indicated that she likes not only the shade of tooth number 9, uh, but the size and the shape of tooth number 9 as well. So we're going to use this as our reference tooth, if you will. We've taken photographs already of this tooth that we will send to the laboratory technician. And what we're going to do to use it as a reference tooth is prep tooth number seven, tooth number eight, and tooth number 10, and then take an impression with those three teeth already prepped and tooth number nine untouched. Shade selection on this case is relatively straightforward since we are preparing teeth number seven, eight, nine, and 10. Our patient has already told us that she likes the shade of tooth number nine and it's got a relatively high value. I'm looking at it next to a B1 shade guide here and they appear to be relatively close so we will use uh, B1 as our final base shade. Before we begin the tooth preparation we will go ahead and address the gingival situation. This is the tissue trimmer from Axis Dental. This is a ceramic tip. It fits into a high-speed handpiece and we're going to use this in our high-speed handpiece and take it around to just trim some gingiva around tooth number eight and try to match the gingival height and the gingival zenith that we see around tooth number nine. You'll notice we use this uh, without water. That actually impedes the coagulation in the capillaries and can lead to a little more bleeding in the area. So this tip does work better and should be used without the water spray. As with the other preparations in this presentation, we will begin by preparing the cervical margin. We've now completed the depth cut in the gingival third of the teeth with the round bird that we've been using. You'll notice the saucer or smile shape reduction depth cuts right along the gum line. We're staying clear of the gingival tissues here. We don't want to touch it until we have placed our first retraction cord, which we'll do a little bit later. You'll notice we haven't placed any depth cuts on our reference tooth here because, of course, we want to leave this tooth unprepared and untouched so we can take uh, the alginate that we'll pass on to the laboratory technician to help them match the size and shape of that tooth. The next depth cut will 
be performed in the incisal third of the tooth with a 330 burr. This is a standard 330 burr. The head, the cutting portion of the 330 burr, is exactly two millimeters long. And we would like to have two millimeters of incisal reduction here, so we'll begin the next phase of preparation by placing our two millimeter incisal edge depth cuts. So this is an 856-016 burr. This burr is 1.6 millimeters thick at the top of the shank and at the tip is 1.2 millimeters thick. Uh, so we can use each of those dimensions on the different planes. There's three planes, of course, to the facial surface. There's the gingival third, the middle third, and the incisal third. And we're going to make depth cuts uh, accordingly. We'd like to have at least a millimeter of reduction in the gingival third, and we'd like to have 1.5 millimeters of reduction in the middle third and then the two millimeters of reduction on the incisal edge that we've already accomplished and then smooth those together so those three planes form a nice smooth contour to our preparation. As you can see we've now completed the incisal and facial and gingival depth cuts. At this point we're going to take, I prefer a 169L burr, very thin burr. We're going to break contacts between our teeth so we can place our first cord. Then we're just simply going to connect the depth cuts we've already made to assure adequate reduction. You'll note we haven't placed any significant depth cuts on the lingual surface of the teeth, and that's because the opposing teeth usually give us a very good indicator of whether or not we have enough reduction on the lingual. We don't have that luxury on the facial surfaces or the incisal surfaces of the teeth, which is why the depth cuts come in handy. We're going to begin to place our first cord. This is an Ultra Pack double zero cord from Ultranet, very small, a knitted cord, so it's hollow. This is non-medicated and there's no medicaments on it, so we can place this cord in and leave it in for an, a long period of time without having to worry about any adverse effects on the gingiva. This allows us to, when we go in and work in the area of our ging gingival depth cut, we're able to uh, place our gingival margin half a millimeter into the sulcus without having to worry about damaging the gingiva because of the retraction we receive from this first retraction cord that we're now placing. We'll go ahead and place this around all the teeth at this point. The first cord has now been placed. You'll notice we've cut the ends and there is no exposed cord. That's because this cord is going to stay in place throughout the entire impression procedure. We'll place another, a second cord on top of this cord uh, about five minutes before taking the impression. We'll pull that top cord. We'll leave this bottom cord in here, uh, usually until we've actually cemented the temporaries into place, and then we'll take that cord out and remove the temporary cement with it. So the first cord is in. It's flush. None of the ends are sticking out. You can already see our gingival depth cut, for example, on this lateral incisor that was at the level of the gingiva. The gingiva has now been retracted about a half millimeter. Uh, by the first retraction cord. And so now at this point we're going to blend all of our depth cuts together on the facial, the incisal, and we're going to drop the margin down to the level of where the gingiva is now. And so when the retraction cord is out and the tissues have come back, our PFM margin is going to be about halfway into the depth of that sulcus, about uh, 0.5 to 1 millimeters under the free gingival margin. The lingual reduction will be accomplished with the football burr, which will give us the concave lingual surface that we are looking for. Here is the lateral incisor uh, immediately after removal of the old restorations. You can see some areas that appear to still be carious. We'll go ahead and use 
uh, a caries detecting solution seek a green solution, a green dye, to check for the presence of caries before we place our filler materials. And one of the good uses of uh, caries indicating solution is, as shown here, there's not nearly as much caries as uh, one might have expected, especially in that lingual pit where there's a, a darker brown color. There's just a little bit on the distal where that restoration used to be. So, be. so we'll go and remove that quickly and then uh, move on with our filler material. Our dental assistant has mixed the Vitrobon material. I'm going to place this with a, a Dical applicator. This is a tricurier material. So we will need to light cure it here to get it to set. Because of the glass ionomer material's inherent bonded dent, and there's no need for pre-etching on this step, which is nice. We've now placed the Vitrobon filler material and smoothed it off, and you can see all the voids are gone. This will leave us with an ideal preparation shape that will maximize our crown's retention and resistance on the preparation. The flexible clearance tabs, these are available through dental dealers and come from Kerr Lab Division. Uh, they come in different colors. This one happens to be one millimeter thick. Uh, the green one happens to be 1.5 millimeters thick. For the rest, it depends on whether or not you're going to have a metal lingual or a ceramic lingual. I'm looking for about 1.25 millimeters of lingual reduction here. So when I have the patient bite together, go ahead and bite down on the one millimeter one and it slips right out. Bite together and bite together and it slips right out. And the 1.5 then should be a little snug. Bite together bite together, bite together, and it's just a little snug, but when she bites together, she comes all the way together on her posterior teeth, even on the 1.5 millimeter. Usually our lingual reduction will increase just a little as we go in and smooth the final preparation as well. Now that we have obtained an alginate impression with the reference tooth in place, we are free to prepare the reference tooth, so we'll go ahead and just repeat the steps we've already accomplished on the other teeth, starting with the incisal ledge depth cuts. We're going to use some soft flex discs from 3M Espy here to round off any sharp angles that we might have on the preparations. The reason for doing this is thin, sharp incisal angles. When we're going to pour those in the laboratory, those little pieces of stone break off rather easily and we end up with a master model that has a shorter tooth preparation than the patient does in their mouth. Thus, when you get the final restoration back in your office, it will not seat completely because the restoration was made on a model of a preparation that was shorter than the prep is in real life. So we're going to use these discs just to round off any sharp corners we might have, round over any sharp edges we might have that we won't be able to reproduce with our die stone. We are now placing the second cord, the top cord. Uh, the first cord has been placed, it's a double zero cord, and now this is a number two cord being placed on top of that. The optimum time to leave this top cord in is about eight to 10 minutes to get maximum retraction. Prior to removing the top cord, we're going to re-wet these. What this does is help release the cord from the tissue. So like a Band-Aid that has been in place, uh, if you wet it, it's easier to remove it without causing any bleeding. So we will re-wet the top cord, remove it, and then start taking our impression. 
As my assistant fills the tray with the heavy body material, I begin syringing the light body material around the preparation closest to me. Uh, we go at least 360 degrees around the tooth, preferably 720 degrees around the tooth to make sure we do not get any pulls from inclusion of gingival fluid or any other moisture that may be present around the preparations. After waiting the three minute set time, we now remove the impression. And unlike an alginate impression, because this is a polyvinyl siloxane, we remove it slowly to give any material caught in an undercut a chance to rebound as we take out the impression. We're gonna use the capture hard bite material. I like it because of how stiff it is, how hard it sets. Very quick set time, just about 60 seconds. We extrude it right onto the preps, none of the adjacent teeth, just the preparations. Instruct the patient to bite down into it. Go ahead and close all the way down, perfect. And hold it just like that for one minute. We are now trying in the bio temps by themselves. They should have a passive fit and fit right into place. We are now relining the biotemps with a methyl methacrylate material, and uh, we will leave this in the mouth and check to see when it's going through its doughy stage, and then pump it up and down a few times to make sure we don't get locked into any undercuts. The biotemps restorations have been trimmed and now cemented into place with uh, Temp Bond Clear. You can see how nice they look. We've actually got some incisolated translucency. We've got nice shape, nice shade on those. They blend in well. Uh, we've tried to open the embrasures, for example, between eight and nine to make sure we don't do any damage uh, to those papilla uh, during the two weeks while these provisionals will be in place. We would certainly rather leave that a little bit open and allow our uh, papilla to be touched by an interproximal brush or the patient rinsing, uh, as opposed to having too much reline material there underneath the biotemps in an embrasure area and actually cause some recession of that papilla, which could lead to a black triangle situation when we try and our permanent restorations. Before we remove the biotemps, let's uh, take a look at the gingival tissue and how it healed around our provisional restorations. It looks very nice. In fact, you'll recall on tooth number eight, we actually did a little crown lengthening here with that tissue trimmer. And one of the advantages of biotemps is that in the laboratory, they are able to make these two teeth, the two central incisors, the exact same length for us, uh, which anticipates our tissue trimming. So once we've gone in and removed the excess gingiva, our biotemp restoration will be just as long on this central as it is on this one. It'll help the healing of that soft tissue so that we get a level that's even for when you look at tooth number eight and tooth number nine. So as I look at all four of the anterior teeth, we've had an excellent gingival response to the temporaries, which is exactly what we need to be able to cement our permanent restorations into a dry, clean field. We're now going to remove the biotemp restorations. Usually it's just curved hemostats just like that and pop them right off. Just about all the temporary cement has stayed on the biotemps and not on the preparation, so we'll have very little cleanup prior to trying in the permanent restorations. We're going to clean the preparations with some pumice. This happens to be uh, the preppies from Whip Mix, and it's a pre-mixed pumice. It's really nice, very smooth, easy to use, good single-use unidose packaging and we'll just put it in a uh, profi cup and polish our preparations. We're ready to try in the final restorations at this time. The best way to do it is to try the units in individually first and assess the marginal fit and then try them in collectively and check the contacts as well. So we'll try them in individually first.
All the units have been tried in individually and they all have excellent marginal fit. So now that we've got them in together, we can go ahead and check the contacts. Andrea had the chance to sit up and uh, evaluate her new crowns in the mirror and I'm happy to say she loves how they look so we are now ready for the cementation procedure. Um, usually we will place a desensitizer on the teeth and we're going to do that now. This is Hemoseal inside from Advantage Dental Products. It's a combination of chlorhexidine and Hema and actually in the latest CRA report uh, did very well in their tests and we just about always on all of our PFM cementations will place uh, a thin layer of this on and then evaporate it with some air prior to cementation of the final restorations. We've placed the Reliax Unisem into the crowns. We're now going to begin seating them individually, starting with the central incisors. I will place them first and apply uh, finger pressure to push the crowns down into place. Then I also like to use an orange wood stick just to get a little more pressure and make sure that it's down all the way. I will also use the orange wood stick on the two central incisors to make sure that we have the incisal edges lined up, although with the fit of these CapTech restorations, there's uh, no play in these restorations anyway, and there's really only one way that they can seat. And with the Unisem, because it also has a light cure component, our operatory light will start to cure it, and we'll start to clean it off as it goes into its gel stage. With the Unisem, you want to clean it up uh, sooner than later. It's a self-etching resin cement, and it's as strong as any resin cement you've used before, and it's very difficult to get little pieces of cement out from between the teeth and the embrasures once it is set fully. After cleaning the cement off, we're going to use uh, this polishing product from Axis Dental. This is called Chamois. It's a felt wheel along with a ceramic polish and we will take this along the facial surfaces of the crowns to remove any excess cement and put a final glaze onto our CapTech restorations. We've achieved a very nice aesthetic and functional result. Uh, you can see contours look nice, surface texture looks nice, nice embrasures everywhere, uh, nice incisal edge translucency as you look at the teeth with a nice white halo effect right underneath it. That's exactly what we were looking for. We sent along a photograph of another set of teeth uh, to the technician and they were able to match that in these final restorations. Uh, contacts were good, occlusion's fine, and excursions are fine as well. And you can see we've uh, achieved a really nice result here with some pre-planning, the, the use of a reference tooth here to kind of help guide the technicians along for the size, shape, and form of tooth that we were looking for. All in all, it's been a really nice case, and uh, patient and doctor and staff are very happy with the final result. Let's take a closer look at the reverse preparation technique on our interactive tablet. I call it a reverse preparation technique because it begins by us placing a depth cut in the gingival third of the tooth. For example, we're going to take a round diamond and place what's going to appear to be almost a smile, a depth cut here in the gingival third using a round burr. The shank of the round burr will rest against the tooth so it'll be a limiting depth cut. Let's take a look at what that gingival depth cut looks like from a sagittal view. Because it's a round diamond, it will leave us with a half circle down to the level of the DEJ. It's going to stay above the level of the gum tissue. And we're also going to place this depth cut on the lingual surface as well. When we do our axial reduction, this will end us giving us a nearly perfect margin. Now that the gingival depth cuts have been placed, the next step of the reverse preparation technique is to break the contacts. 
This can be done with a carbide burr or a small diamond, but essentially we're just going to go in and staying above the gum tissue, break the contacts. This is going to give us room to place our first retraction cord. Now that we've broken contacts, the third stage of the reverse preparation technique is to place the first cord or the bottom cord. This is a size double zero cord from Ultradent, a hollow knitted cord. And when this cord is placed, it will actually retract the gingiva enough so that you can now clearly visualize uh, the margin that you cut with the round burr. It will also retract the gingiva about a half to three quarters of a millimeter so you can now take a fine grit diamond and at the end of the preparation technique, finish off that margin until it's very smooth and easy to read. The fourth step of the reverse preparation technique is to place the incisal edge depth cuts. It's easiest to use a burr of known dimensions, such as a 330 burr that has a 2 millimeter cutting surface on it. You can use that to its full depth at the shank or just use it uh, almost to its full length and have it be a 1.5 millimeter depth cut. 1.5 millimeters is probably a minimum amount to give the dental technician enough room to create a very natural aesthetic incisal edge. When we look at the incisal edge depth cuts from a sagittal view, you'll notice that the 330 burr comes down and leaves a depth cut mark. And when we go ahead and connect these depth cuts, what we want to do is have the resulting reduction be parallel to the original incisal edge, to the slope of the incisal edge. So we'd like to have an incisal reduction that appears to be in about this direction. And we'll blend this with the facial depth cuts a little bit later. The fifth step of the reverse preparation technique is the facial reduction. This is most easily accomplished by placing depth cuts with a barrel burr. This is a burr that has two or three separate stripes on it and will give us a depth cut of known reduction, typically 1.3 to 1.5 millimeters. And then once these are placed, the remaining two structure can be reduced according to those depth cuts with a chamfer or a shoulder burr. Let's take a look and see what those facial depth cuts would look like from a sagittal view. They would be 1.3 to 1.5 millimeters in depth, and we would want to keep the burr parallel to the labial surface of the tooth. The tooth would then, of course, be reduced in accordance with those depth cuts. On the lingual, reduction is performed with a convex football burr. This results in a concave reduction, allowing the technician to build proper lingual anatomy into our restoration. The sixth step of the reverse preparation technique is to blend all the reduction cuts that we've made so far. This is especially important on the facial surface where we have three distinct planes, the incisal plane, the middle plane, and the gingival plane. So even though we made three different depth cuts in these areas, at this point it becomes necessary to blend all three of those depth cuts so that the preparation mimics the facial outline of the original tooth. The seventh and final step of the reverse preparation technique is to finish the margins. We like to take a red grit 30 micron diamond and go around the margin, smoothing that surface off so the laboratory technician will have no question as to where the end of our margin is. Now that we've completed the preparation, the last step is to put the second cord in place. This is going to be a size 2 cord from Ultradent. And this cord is the top cord in the 2 cord technique and is going to sit on top of the smaller cord that's already been in place throughout the entire technique. This top cord will stay in place for eight to 10 minutes, at which time it will be re-wetted, removed, the prep will be dried, and the impression will be taken. The reverse preparation technique is identical on posterior teeth, with the exception of step four. Rather than placing incisal edge depth cuts, we place occlusal depth cuts on posterior teeth. We use a burr of a known diameter, 1.5 millimeters, to go ahead and place some depth cuts and then make our reductions into the tooth. One of the main mistakes that dentists make when doing this occlusal reduction is to leave the occlusal surface of the preparation too flat. 
In a case like this, the dental technician does not have enough room to develop proper anatomy. The right way to do an occlusal reduction such as this is to bring this down so that it mimics the original shape of the central groove. If the reduction is done in a manner like this, the laboratory technician will have more than enough space to develop a proper aesthetic and functional central groove. Looking at it clinically, the tip of the burr should be in the central groove and the angle of the burr should mimic the occlusal plane. If there is a class 1 restoration, such as an amalgam present, many times the base of the restoration will correspond to the proper depth of your occlusal reduction for the central groove. This illustrates how proper occlusal reduction looks. At this point, only the buccal cusps have been reduced. In this case, two millimeters for our PFM restoration. ProCeram is our proven industry standard PFM. It can be fused to non-precious, semi-precious, or white high noble alloys. It is our most prescribed PFM for routine crown and bridge casework. Let's take a closer look at the clinical placement of this popular restoration. We'll be doing a bridge on teeth number four through six, a bridge on teeth number 12 through 15, and single unit crowns on number seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11. As you look at teeth number nine and number 10, you'll notice that we have uh, metal margins that are showing from the previous PFMs due to gingival recession. And we also have some dark root structure on tooth number nine as this tooth has been endodontically treated. Let's go ahead and begin by preparing the anterior teeth. We are now removing the old PFM restorations using a diamond for the ceramic and a carbide for the metal and the crown remover spreads the crown so that we can remove the pieces. We notice the central incisor appears short compared to the lateral so we're now going to build up that tooth, cure that into place and then we'll begin prepping the built up central incisor. We're now going to use a diamond rounder in the high speed to prep the gingival margin first. We do this because we still have our tooth landmarks at this point. Um, this is kind of a self-limiting depth cut. This burr will only go as deep as uh, the shank touching the outside of the tooth will allow. So we're going to do what's going to look like a smile. We're not going to touch the gingiva. We're going to keep it right at uh, the margin of the gingiva and take it right along the facial until we hit the adjacent tooth in approximately. We have placed our two millimeter incisal edge depth cuts and we will now connect those. We will place our facial depth cuts of 1.5 millimeters and accomplish that reduction as well. We are now doing our lingual reduction with a football burr. And then we use the 3M Softlex disc to remove any sharp edges from the preparation, especially at the incisal angle. The biotemps have the reline material inside and we'll wait for that to get into its doughy stage. And then as this continues to set, we'll use a micro brush to remove material away from the margins wherever we have some excess material. We finished preparing the anterior teeth. We've relined the biotemps and placed those temporaries on those teeth. We're now going to prepare the bridge on the left-hand side of the mouth. This bridge will include uh, tooth number 11, tooth number 12 as the anterior abutments. Uh, teeth number 13 and 14 will be ponics on the bridge and the distal abutment for the bridge will be tooth number 15. We're going to use the same preparation technique that we used on the anterior teeth and we'll be using this photographic mirror that's in place right now to help us align the abutments, make sure we have good parallelism of the abutments and try to avoid undercuts on the preparations as well. As with the anterior teeth, we'll begin by breaking the contacts between the teeth. We're ready to place our gingival third depth cut. 
This is a real important depth cut as we look at uh, models and impressions that come into the laboratory. This is definitely one area, in addition to occlusal reduction, where dentists have a tendency to under-reduce the preparations. Another way to place depth cuts is to use uh, a barrel diamond like this, which is often used to place depth cuts in veneer preparations. We'll go ahead and use this just as an example uh, on the facial surfaces of the anterior teeth for our axial reduction and then use a tapered diamond to connect the depth cuts and ensure we have adequate reduction for the technicians. We have finished our tooth reduction and at this point we're going to check the occlusal reduction on the tooth. This is Capture Hard Bite from Glidewell Direct and after about 45 to 60 seconds we'll have the patient open and we'll use some calipers to measure this. We have 1.8 millimeters of reduction. This is the STS diamond set from Brassler. It stands for shorter than short. They've got very short shanks and short cutting tips as well and it's perfect for areas uh, where a patient just doesn't have the, uh, the space to be able to fit a regular size diamond. As per the two core technique we are placing this first cord, this is an UltraDent 00 cord, just teasing it under the gum tissue. Watch how on the mesial aspect of the preparation you can really see the margin come into view as the gingiva is retracted. That's why I like this technique so much. It really allows me to visualize the detail at the margin. So this first cord will be packed into place and then I will take a red fine diamond and finish the gingival margin. This is some final finishing of the gingival margin with our fine grit diamond. You can see the first cord is in place at this point and has retracted the tissue so we have a clear view of our gingival margin. It's also protecting the tissue. We still do not want to touch the gingiva with this burr at any point. This is the placement of the second cord, the top cord. This is an UltraDent number one uh, cord. We are teasing this under the tissue. This will remain in place for about seven to ten minutes at which time it will be removed and the impression will be taken. We are painting the capture adhesive on this custom tray. Even though it's already perforated just for a little additional hold, I like to use custom trays whenever we have more than two or three preparations because I know the tray is going to fit perfectly and we end up using less impression material as well. We are now ready to take the impression. We have re-wet the top cord before we remove it so it doesn't cause any bleeding if it's happened to adhere to the gingival tissues. And then once we remove the wet cord, my assistant will dry off the preparations and then we will syringe the wash material around the preparations and insert the custom tray that's been filled with the tray material. Since we use the capture bridge set material due to the multiple preparations, that has a three minute intraoral set time. We are now gonna remove the impression and I will take a quick glance at it here to make sure that everything looks good and it does. Over the years, one of the common problems I've noticed with these large anterior cases is they'll come back from the laboratory with a canted smile at times where the incisal edges or the smile line is slanting either to the left or the right. And what we do to make sure this doesn't happen is we give a vertical and a horizontal stick bite to the laboratory. So we'll put some bite registration material on the teeth, then we'll place a horizontal stick line. We'll view the patient with their eyes open and put this stick parallel to the interpupillary line and then we'll go ahead and place some more bite registration and put a stick right at the patient's midline right underneath their nose to give the information uh, about the midline and the horizontal plane to the technician. Here we are using an occlusal photographic mirror to check the draw on our preparations. I find this works a lot better than a smaller mouth mirror to be able to line up multiple preparations. It's a little difficult to see the molar prep I know on camera but I can see that it does draw well with the first bicuspid on that side and the two bridge abutments on the other side draw as well.
On the first appointment, we prepared the four anterior teeth. On the second appointment, we prepared the posterior teeth and the bridges. So we have made uh, one single biotemp unit for all these preparations now, and it has been relined. I'm now going to remove that. We're going to clean the provisional cement off with a preppy pumice. And uh, we have tried in the restorations. We are now going to cement these. We're putting a desensitizer on the teeth. This is Hemoseal inside from Advantage Dental Products. And we are now going to place the final restorations into place with 3M SB's Reliax looting cement. We're going to start in the anterior, place the central incisors, move on to the lateral incisors. I like to just start in the front because we can start our cleanup in the front as well. That way, if we do have any contact issues that need to be addressed during cementation, we can take care of those in the posterior so that we don't have to change the mesiodistal widths of our anterior teeth. So Ruben's case has been cemented and we've let him have uh, two weeks uh, to wear the case, to function with it, and uh, he reports no problems. The occlusion's been good, his function's good, his phonetics are good. Here is an occlusal view of the cemented porcelain to metal restorations. You can see we've got nice arch form. Oftentimes I'll use this view uh, to sight down and look and make sure we have nice uh, facial anatomy and I can see three distinct lobes for example on the central incisors. That looks fantastic. The lingual embrasures look good, the facial embrasures look good. Very pleased with how the crowns look from this view. I'd like to take a closer look at some impressions and the two core technique, but first a few thoughts on double arch trays. For a single unit crown or two adjacent single unit crowns, I almost always will use a double arch tray. We've got two trays here. Uh, we've got a plastic tray, which is a little bit shorter and a little more flimsy. And we have one from Clinician's Choice. It's a quadrant tray that's a little bit longer and not nearly as flexible when I squeeze it because it's made out of metal and not plastic. And let's go ahead and try both of these trays uh, into our patient's mouth and see how they fit. As I place this, we're going to set the most distal portion behind the upper second molar and have the patient bite together. And the first thing we're going to do is confirm that the patient is in maximum intercuspation. Uh, sometimes on the plastic trays, because of the piece of plastic at the most distal part of the tray, and it'll interfere with the maxillary tuberosity and the patient can't close together all the way. So we're okay on this tray, but when I look at the patient's cuspid on the side we'll be preparing the crown, it will not be captured because of the length of the tray. So in my opinion, this tray is too short to take our final impression with. We'll go ahead and take our pre-impression in this plastic tray. Let's take a look now at the Clinician's Choice Quad Tray and see how that fits. And bite together. Again, the patient is able to bite together completely and I can see the mesh on the inside of the tray extends all the way to the lateral incisor on this side. So this will be a good tray uh, to use for our double arch impression. Uh, when the laboratory receives a double arch impression for a single unit, if the cuspid uh, is not included in the impression, it's going to be very difficult for them to do lateral excursions on the crown. So we need to have the upper and lower cuspids captured in our quadrant tray or our double arch impression for the lab to be able to give us nice lateral excursions that are going to work well when we cement the crown. The beauty of the two-core technique is the amount of retraction it provides with no gingival bleeding. At this point, the top cord has been in for 8 to 10 minutes, has been re-wet, and is ready to be removed. Once it's taken out, the prep is dried, and I want you to notice the amount of retraction we have in a blood-free sulcus. 
This is certainly easier to achieve in a two-chord technique as opposed to a one-chord technique. We go around the tooth two times with the syringe material. As I move around the tooth, the tip will stay buried in the material the entire time. There will always be material in front of the tip. I come around into the distal. I keep pressure on it as I come to my original starting point. Many times I will go around a second time. And then as I remove the tip from the material, I will continue to express pressure so I don't pull any air and introduce a void into the material. I'll take the tray with the tray material, seat it distal to the second molar, and ask the patient to bite together. As soon as the patient bites together, we'll go to the other side and verify we're at maximum intercuspation. Here's a little closer look at the impression. I can see the margins, uh, 360 degrees around the tooth, which is very important. I can see the edge of the actual impression itself where it was butting up against that bottom cord that we had in place. So when the impression came out, it left the impression of the knitted cord that's on there. I like seeing that because it extends a millimeter or two past the margin that I can see on the impression. This will give some root surface anatomy to the technician and allow them to develop a better emergence profile by being able to see uh, one or two millimeters of tooth structure apical to the margin itself. Let's take a look at a few problem impressions from the desks of our technical advisors and see how they might have been improved. Here's an impression for a four unit bridge from a lower first molar to a cuspid. And uh, the problem with this impression is the fact that it was taken with a double arch impression tray. Double arch impression trays are great for single units or two adjacent units, but should never be used uh, for any kind of bridge, especially a four unit bridge like this. The other problem with this impression is I roll it over, if you look on the lingual, of the molar, you'll notice that we've got some of the trays showing through right at the lingual margin of that preparation, which is unacceptable. We need to have uh, impression material all the way around the lingual margin there and have no tray showing through, especially when it's in contact with the margin of the preparation. Here's an exercise in frustration. Uh, this doctor had to take four impressions to try to capture the margins uh, on all the different teeth that were prepared, two full arch impressions and two uh, quadrant trays. It's very difficult and no amount of impressions will make up for sloppy tissue technique. And as we look just at one tooth here, we can see a pull coming from the side of there. We can see a pull over on this tooth as well. Uh, that's why I prefer the double cord technique that you'll see in this videotape because it gives me much more predictable results. I don't want to have to take four impressions and still not capture all the margins of my preparations. Here's the solid model from one of those four impressions and you can see what the problem is. We've got a nice well-defined margin as we move along here and then it just simply disappears on the lingual and the tissue is sitting up against the margin and there's really no way for us to be able to guess on a case like this and make a margin for you. The margins aren't much better on the bicuspids as well. So we have a bridge here where we cannot clearly see the margins 360 degrees around the tooth on any of the preparations and again the double core technique could have prevented this. This is an example of a good use of an anterior double arch tray because of the fact that we just have one unit that's been prepared here. I can see all the margins as I look around this impression, which is nice. I wish I could see more material uh, beyond the margins, so this tells me that this was done with a one chord technique rather than a two chord technique. My one area of concern on this impression is when I hold it up and try to look through it in the area of the bicuspids, I cannot see through the impression material, and that tells me that the patient was not in maximum intercuspation when this tray was in their mouth. So in a case like this, if you cannot see through there, we would ask you to take a separate bite registration and send it along with the case. And we will use that bite registration to mount the models. Let's go ahead and take a look at the model for this case. 
On the model, we can see the shoulder margin that the doctor prepared, 360 degrees around the tooth. We can also see some anti-rotational grooves that the doctor has placed in the preparation, and you'll see why those are there in a second. As I turn this over, you can see how short that preparation is. If I take a perioprobe and mention, we'll see that this prep is just three millimeters long on the facial, and it's less than that on the lingual. So we have very little feral effect or mechanical retention to help hold this crown into place. What we would prefer to see is have the doctor place a couple pins and a core buildup and build this preparation back down to the level where it should be. Where should it be? Well, if you look at this adjacent unprepared tooth and imagine taking one and a half millimeters of incisal reduction, that's where this preparation should be and it's still a good two to three millimeters short of that at this time. As a result, we're going to have to hope that our resin cement will retain this crown long term. On this impression, I like the doctor's selection of a full arch tray uh, for a three-unit anterior bridge. That's fantastic. What I don't like about it is that it's a two-step uh, putty wash impression. I would prefer that the light body material be syringed around the preparations while the putty uh, had not set and it was placed and they were able to set simultaneously. Uh, what we see when it's done separately like this is a delamination that occurs between the two materials. And you can see how I could literally just peel this right off and this will happen all around the periphery of the impression in thin areas on the inside of the impression this will pull away as well so if this is done as a simultaneous putty wash impression that won't happen when the two materials set simultaneously as a result we get some double impressions in certain areas and the margins aren't always very clear let's go ahead and take a look at this model on the model I noticed some pulls actually in the areas of the preparation that I didn't even notice on the impression sometimes these things are difficult to see on the impression and much easier to see on the model. The other thing I notice is how far subgingival that these margins are. This is always an impediment to taking a good impression when you have margins like this that are placed four or five millimeters subgingival. This makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to get good accurate representation of your margins in the impression material. Here's an impression that looks uh, very nice. We've got a stock metal tray used for 10 units of full crowns that have been prepared on the maxillary arch. And as I look around, I can see not only the margins, not only the deep chamfer or shoulder margins on all these teeth, but I can also see uh, a small bit of material and extension beyond the margin of the preparation. This is going to capture some of the root surface and allow the technicians to develop a better emergence profile on the final restorations. Let's go ahead and take a look at this model. As expected, we are clearly able to see the margins on all these preparations. It's going to be very easy for the technician to be able to trim these dies and wax correctly to the proper margins. With this type of model and this type of impression, you certainly expect the final restorations to go right to place. These next two cases are highly unacceptable impressions. This first one is for a single unit crown, and this is all we receive from the doctor. As I flip this over, you'll see that it's merely bite registration that was extruded between uh, the patient's two teeth and then relined with some light body impression material. We have no adjacent teeth to go by, no opposing teeth, no real way to get the bite. This is the entire impression sent to us by the doctor. The chances of us making an adequate crown are slim to none. And likewise, on this next impression, this was taken without a tray. This again is a bite registration material relined with a light body syringe material. And this is even worse because this is for a bridge, a three unit bridge. And again, we do not have a lot of adjacent tooth information. Uh, we have nothing on the other side of the arch because of the flimsy nature of this and the chances of us making an adequate bridge. Uh, it's going to be impossible for us to make a bridge that's going to function well. 
for this patient. Both of these doctors will need to be called to take new impressions. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation. The techniques and procedures we looked at today are everyday procedures that you'll be performing in your office. And that is the reason why it's so important to be able to do these things correctly. Crown and Bridge is the backbone of nearly all successful general dental practices. And those practitioners that can do it successfully are rewarded in many ways. Take a look at your preparation technique and see if it assures you proper, consistent reduction. Does your impression technique give you the same results many practitioners are achieving with the two core technique I presented here today? If you can predictably do crown and bridge that looks good, feels good, and lasts, you will have a very successful dental practice and we at Glidewell Laboratories will be privileged to be part of that team.